This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles to Revelation 7, if you would please. Revelation 7. As you're doing that, I want you to imagine for a moment you're a marriage counselor and uh, you have a new case and uh, you've got a married couple coming to see you. It's Pastor Brian and his wife, Jadada. The, uh, the point of friction is communication. This is not necessarily a representation of reality before I go any further. Uh, point of friction is uh, communication. And um, uh, now, my wife is a uh, playful personality, and uh, it comes out in the way that we talk about our day or whatever topic is on our minds. And uh, it comes through in the way she relays stories and ideas. And, and you know, she likes to uh, conversationally, you know, hop around like those cute bunnies in cartoons. And and uh, periodically, she'll you know hop down a, this rabbit hole and. You know, stay there for a little bit, and then she'll reappear on the surface and uh, meander about a little bit as she uh, concludes her thoughts. Um, I, on the other hand, would prefer to hear your concluding statement immediately. <laughs> and then you're free to uh, back up and uh, fill in only those details necessary to support your concluding, concluding statement. Okay? All right, so that's the friction. So we've, we've come to you to see you Uh, And during our time together, I openly admit that in a recent conversation with my wife, I mentally checked out while she was down a rabbit hole and uh, completely missed what she was saying. And I openly confessed that I did this because I just didn't find it interesting or relevant. Okay? Now, how would you counsel us? How would you counsel us? I think I know you well enough Uh, to figure out that you would say, I'm at fault. Yes? Go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say it. You would say, look, pastor, your wife is your wife. Of all people, whom you ought to listen attentively to, it's your wife. The woman with whom you've made a covenant. Loving her the way you're supposed to love her means listening attentive, uh, attentively to everything she has to say. You just can't check out on her because what you think she's saying is uninteresting or irrelevant. Am I on the right track? Okay. Let the record show that, babe. God speaks in the Bible. And one of the ways we express love for God is by hanging on his every word. Our hearts grow cold to God when we find this verse or that chapter to be uninteresting or irrelevant. Just as wanting to listen and understand all your spouse is saying to you is an expression of love for them, so too, Wanting to listen and understand all that God is saying to us is an expression of our love for him. Okay? Let's remember that always, and especially as we look at Revelation 7 today. 
Okay? Now, we need to reorient ourselves to where we are in this book. At the end of chapter 6, Jesus opened the sixth seal, and the final judgment issues forth. The final verses describing the sixth seal are in chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? That's the conclusion of the sixth seal. There are seven of them. One would expect that we would move on to the seventh seal, but we don't. We're interrupted. There's a sidebar, an interlude, hitting the pause button and saying, okay, we're going to huddle up about something first before we go to the seventh seal. Chapter seven is the interruption. It's the sidebar. It's the huddle. And chapter 7 is answering the question chapter 6 ended with. The great day of the wrath of God and the Lamb has come. The question is, who can withstand it? The chapter 6 ends with a question. Who can stand on that great day of judgment? Chapter 7 is going to answer the question. So before we get to the seventh seal, there's a pause. And God, through a vision he's giving to John, is going to say, now I'm going to tell you how you can withstand that, that great and terrible day. So we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to ask and answer six questions today about chapter 7. Okay? This is one of the chapters in the Bible where we have to learn to love God with our minds. Okay? Love, love Him with our minds. Here are the six questions. Does chapter 7 follow chronologically from chapter 6? Who are the 144,000? What is the seal on the foreheads of the servants of God? Who are the great multitude no one can count? What is the great tribulation? And what is our great reward? Okay? We've got to ask these if we're going to understand chapter 7. Okay, here we go. First, does chapter 7 follow chronologically from chapter 6? No. But I understand why you might think so, because in verse 1, John says, after this. That must mean that what he's about to describe uh, happens after chapter 6. But we have to remember something. John is being given visions. When he says, after this I saw, he's not saying this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But rather, he's saying, after my previous vision, I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision. It's an assumption on our part that he's being fed these visions in chronological order. In fact, it would be more, more um, consistent with apocalyptic literature for him not to be given these visions in chronological order. The random pictures conveying spiritual reality, theological truth. So here's a picture, John. Here's a picture, John. Here's a picture, John. We have a little bit of an obsession with chronology in Western, the Western world. Um, chronological history writing is actually more of a modern-day phenomenon. Um, you get back into the 1600s, 1500s, and before that, you'll find most of the history books, they're not written in chronological order. They're written more thematically. So it's chronology is more of a modern invention. So John's not, chapter 7 is not in chronological order. Chapter 7 is a flashback in time before the sixth seal. 
The sixth seal is the end of the world. The sun turned black, the moon turned blood red, the stars fell from the sky, the heavens receded like a scroll. But look at what you have in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been in power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So chapter 7 has got stuff established that has receded and gone away and been destroyed in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is a flashback in time before the sixth seal. And it's answering the question chapter 6 ended with. The cry at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? Okay, So chapter 7 goes back in time and God says, let me show you how people can endure such an awful event in the sixth seal. How can you avoid this terrifying demise? The answer is you need to be part of the 144,000. Okay? You need to be part of the 144,000. Who are they? Many Christians, sincere, Bible-believing brothers and sisters, would explain the 144,000 like this. And some of you may. The church is raptured prior to the great tribulation. Christ comes twice. In other words, he comes for his church the first time. He brings them to heaven. And then he comes back a second time with his church later. So during that time when the church is gone, there's a remnant of 144,000 ethnic Jews who are converted. Now, this is not my understanding of these things. Uh, One of the questions I've had is that since the church is gone, how do they get converted? But we'll leave that for another day. Uh, These Jewish converts, 12,000 from each tribe, then evangelize the Gentiles who then form the great multitude that verses 9 through 17 talk about. So verses 1 through 8 is the the 12 tribes, all these numbers, and then verses 9 through 17 is the great multitude. That's, That's the understanding of many godly Christians as they look at this passage. I don't take it that way. I understand the 144,000 to be, as many numbers are in Revelation, to be symbolic. And this is symbolic of the entire people of God. Why? Let me give you a number of reasons. First, this image of sealing comes from Ezekiel 9, where those who are not idolaters get a seal on their forehead. If you're an idolater, you don't get a seal and you're wiped out. So there are only two groups of people in Ezekiel 9, idolaters and non-idolaters, those who belong to God and those who don't. Second reason, if you look at verse 3, the 144,000 are called servants of our God, and I don't think there's any reason to make it narrower than that. It's the servants of God. In fact, every time servants of God are referenced in the book, it refers to the totality of God's people. It never refers to an ethnic Jewish remnant. Third, the 144,000 are also mentioned in chapter 14, verse 4. Let me read this verse for you. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins, They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. So if we're to understand this as a literal number of ethnic Jews, then we must also understand it is literally only celibate men. And I would suggest a better understanding is that this is symbolic. Next, the list of tribes here is stylized. 12 times 12 times a multitude, a thousand. The totality of God's people, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, the totality of God's people under both covenants. Now, there are over a dozen lists of the 12 tribes in the Bible. Jacob, the patriarch, had 12 sons from four different women, and they formed the tribes of Israel. 
However, Levi, one of Jacob's sons, is not uh, off as, is not listed among the twelve tribes because he was a, in the priestly class and did not receive land. And you have instead of Joseph, you've got usually him replaced by Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons. So one to replace Joseph, one to replace Levi. That's usually how the twelve tribes works out. If you look at this list, all of Jacob's sons are listed except for one, Dan. Levi is mentioned, but not Dan. In his place is listed Manasseh, one of Joseph's sons. Why? Why not Dan? Why is Dan excluded? Dan is left out to point to the purity of God's redeemed people. Why? Because very early on, Dan was the center of idolatry in Israel. That became his reputation. You read about that in Judges 18 and 1 Kings 12. So the list is stylized. The point is that this is a number to depict God's perfectly pure, redeemed people from all time over all the earth. Let me give you one more reason. We saw in chapter 5, when John is receiving this amazing vision of the throne room, he hears about a lion and then turns and looks and sees a slain lamb standing. Remember that? He hears about a lion and then turns and looks and sees a slain lamb standing. They are one and the same. It's Jesus, right? It's not two different people. It's Jesus. Here, John hears a number and turns and sees a multitude. I think the same thing's going on here. This is not, these are not different. Just like chapter 5, it's not different. It's the same entity. So I take the 144,000 um, to be a symbolic number representing God's perfectly pure, redeemed people over all time and all places. Third question, what is the seal on the foreheads of the servants of God? So all of these people, the people of God, the collective people of God have a seal on their forehead. You know the seal is officially... Uh, officials and dignitaries would, would use this to authenticate and pr- uh, protect uh, uh, official documents using their rings. They melted the wax and put the, the ring on it. So it did three things. First, it, it authenticated. If you received a document and you see the seal from the king, you can know it was from the king. It wasn't forged. It wasn't fabricated. Second thing it did is it protected. If the seal was broken, there was a chance the document had been tampered with. So protected. Third, it indicated ownership. This document or, what, and whatever's on, uh, or whatever the seal was on indicates who this belongs to. So to be sealed by God is to be a genuine believer. But the imagery helps us understand what a genuine believer is. It's like having the name of lamb or God tattooed on your forehead. I don't believe this is a literal tattoo, by the way. It's like having, being a believer is like having the word lamb or God written, tattooed on your forehead. If you combined um, arid climates with Jewish clothing practices, the forehead is the one place on the body that was often never covered. It was visible. It was always in plain view. In other words, our identification with the lamb is constantly public. This is the evidence we've been sealed But how are we sealed? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit declares about us and assures to us that we belong to God. That's what the seal does. It declares about us and assures to us, this one is mine. This one belongs to me. And God gives us the Holy Spirit. It's objective and subjective. He wants us to know experientially that inner authentication. Fourth question. Who are the great multitude no one can count? I can, uh, I've already answered this question. It's the same as the 144,000. I understand that there are some people who understand uh, this to be a reference to the Gentile world that is converted by the 144,000 ethnic Israelites. So again, that's not my understanding of it. Uh, it seems to me this is, this is the picture. This is the same picture. We've got 144,000. We've got the multitude. These are together. So in a sense... To sum this up, chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, comes along and says, let me answer the question of who can stand on the day of wrath. Okay? God's people get sealed. They're going to stand. And then chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, comes along and says, see, they stood. The difference is not in their ethnic composition, but in their location. He comes along and says, here's who's going to get sealed. These are the people who are going to stand. Verse 9, fast forwards ahead. See, they stood. Here they are. So the great multitude, in other words, is a host of overcomers. These people won. They were victorious. Look at verse 16. God gives his hope to them because of what they're facing. They've hungered and thirsted. The sun beat upon them. They wept. And yet they did not curse God. They did not compromise. They held fast to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. They proved in Romans 8 language to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's why they're wearing robes in verse 9 as a sign of innocence. And they have palm branches as a sign of victory. So here's a question. It's a hypothetical question, but it's worth asking. Did John see your face in the multitude? Did he see your face in the multitude? Now we need both halves of chapter seven because as a Christian, you need to know you're sealed and secure and you will stand and have confidence when the day of the Lord comes. And as a Christian, you, you know you have to overcome. You have to conquer. You have to live victoriously. These two ideas are not contradictory. Someone will say, well, I'm sealed. I don't have to do anything. Or someone's going to say, I have to fight, so I must not be sealed. No, it's sure, and that's why you fight. It's a little bit like the scene um, in the second Lord of the Rings movie, the very end, all the bad guys are coming you know, the orcs, the goblins, the Urukai. Uh, they come, they're at Helm's Deep, and, uh, you know, the elves are all there, and, and all the good guys, and they're holed up, and it's raining, and it's dark, because it's always raining and dark. And uh, it's going terribly for, uh, for the good guys, and the bad guys break through the wall, and, and the good guys are about to give up, but then dawn breaks, and they see Gandalf on his white horse. And he has all the Rohirrim, and he comes down this big hill, and and they know right there, we are going to win this fight. Gandalf is here. But it doesn't make them fight less. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When they see him, they know they're going to win. But what happens? It inspires them to fight more. 
fight with courage and valor. We need to stop imagining the Christian life like a vacation and wake up to the fact that it's a war. You've got to fight the fight of faith. We've got to fight against our sin. The Bible insists our biggest problem is idolatry. We've got to fight it. We've got to fight against it. There's going to be hunger. There's going to be thirst. There's going to be tears. There's going to be hardships. What else did we expect? We serve a Savior who was beaten and mocked and scorned and died. And he's the same Savior who says to us, expect the same. One more thing. This multitude of overcomers is so large, no one can count. There are going to be a lot of people in heaven. be a lot of people in heaven. A lot of people. There'll be a lot of people who get saved before Jesus comes back. And a lot of them won't look like you. They won't speak your language. You're going to think you dropped in on the United Nations. There'll be a lot of Africans there. There's going to be a lot of Chinese there. There'll be a lot of Filipinos there and Brazilians and Mexicans and Indians and Arabs and some white people too. Think about your favorite worship song. You just love hearing it sung in this room with your brothers and sisters. If you think that's cool, just wait until you hear it sung in a hundred different languages. And you learn all their great worship songs you never knew before. Be a thousand times better when you get to hear it in Shonan, in Swedish, in Swahili, French and Finnish, German, Japanese, Korean. Imagine it. Fifth question. What is the great tribulation? Look at verse 14. These are they who came out of the great tribulation. So what is it the multitude of God's people have come out of? The word for tribulation is the word thlipsis, and it occurs over 40 times in the New Testament, and it clearly teaches the church right now is in a time of tribulation. Right now. It teaches us that from Christ's first coming to his second coming, we can expect thlipsis. Hardships, afflictions. John chapter 16, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have thlipsis, tribulation, trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul preaching in Acts 14 says, we must go through many thlipsis, hardships, to enter the kingdom of God. Even in this book starts this way, John, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In the suffering, in the thlipsis, you will face tribulation. Jesus promises it. We don't get a free pass. The church will not be exempt from hardships in the world. So the great tribulation, if we have the 144,000, the great multitude correct, the great tribulation mentioned specifically here is the entire time between Jesus' first and second coming. Now, although we currently are currently living in a period of uh, tribulation on the earth, there will come a time 
just before Christ's second coming, where there will be afflictions and hardships intensified. I think Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 24. He says, For then there will be great distress, flipsis, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now, Matthew 24 is a really tricky passage. The disciples ask Jesus, what are the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus gives all sorts of signs. And, and, and some of what he predicts are fulfilled through, through all of history. Some of what he predicts uh, was fulfilled in 70 AD with, with, with the fall of Jerusalem. And uh, some of what he uh, predicts looks forward to the very end of history. I've mentioned this before. This is the way biblical prophecy works. It allows for multiple fulfillment. So from a distance, a mountain can look very simple. It's a mountain with a single peak, but you know, that's the way we drew mountains as a kid, right? There it is. Bah, bah. That's a mountain, right? Yeah, we know that driven through mountains is a little more complicated than that, right? From a distance, yeah, it can look like a single, single peak. You start driving through it, you realize, well, you know, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. But in Mount Wilson, you can stand on Orange Boulevard in Pasadena, California, look north, you can see Mount Lewis, Wilson, it looks like a singular peak, but as you get closer to it, it's really a series of ridges, that together form Mount Wilson. So, you have prophecy working like this. Jesus gives these these signs, and some of them are five miles away. Some of them are 500 years away. So Jesus gets to verse 21. He's talking about that ridge way out there. The end. That ridge way out there. Anthony Hokema, a scholar in this area, writes this. He says, We conclude then the sign of the tribulation is not restricted to the end time, but characterizes the entire age between Christ's two comings. Because of the continued opposition of the world to the kingdom of God, Christians must expect to suffer tribulation and persecution of one kind or another during this entire age. On the basis of Matthew 24, verse 21, however, it would appear that there will also be a final climactic tribulation just before Christ returns. This tribulation will not basically differ from earlier tribulations, but will be an intensified form of earlier tribulations. Okay. You got it? So here where we're at, before we move on to the last question, we've got the 144,000 sealed before the end. They're marked out. You're going to stand. We get a picture after they have stood, the great multitude who are worshiping God. Two groups are identical. 144,000, the great multitude, are answering the same question. Who will be able to face the wrath of the Lamb unafraid? Who will be able to face this world with confidence? Or to put it more broadly, who will prove to be an overcomer in this fallen world which tempts you to compromise and surrender? And the answer is those who have been sealed and those those who stand in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of the most intense tribulation of the very end, they will stand, they will worship God for all eternity. So what's the last question? What is our great reward? There's two aspects to the great reward. God's provision in verse 16 and God's presence in verse 15. Look at verse 16. This is God's provision. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. One of the things we have to remember is that we will have a physical existence in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not going to appear to each other as Casper the friendly ghost. We will have bodies. We will hug. We will take walks together. 
There will be animals and trees and work to do. And God's provision is that there will no longer be any hunger or malnutrition, no cancer cells, no injuries, no headaches, no suffering, no mourning, no crying, no pain. That's our great reward. There's a second thing that God promises us here, and we'll be rewarded with God's presence, both God's provision and God's presence. Look at verse 15. They are before the throne of God. This is the multitude now, right? This is the multitude. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. This word for temple is the word skenosis, which is the word for tabernacle. It means that for all eternity, God is going to pitch his tent with you. You see, at the beginning of verse 15, it says they are before the throne of God and they serve him in his temple. Don't think literal temple. I do not believe there's going to be a new temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Think presence. Because that's what the temple represented to the people of Israel. They believed God was everywhere. They had the theology. But they had a temple, and behind the curtain, in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, that symbolically represented the fullness of God's presence. This is where God dwells, which is why it's such a big deal in the New Testament that believers are called a temple. God doesn't dwell in a building made by human hands, Paul says. But in our very selves. So in the end, the new heavens and the new earth, there is no literal temple. New heavens, new earth, no literal temple. If you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe John. Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city. Okay, you got it? Good enough? That settles it, right? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So God's presence is not going to be in a building. In the new heavens and the new earth, in the new heavens and the new earth, you're not going to have to say to your friend, you know what, let's hop a plane. We've got to go over to Jerusalem because we've got to go to the temple because that's where God is. He's everywhere. The earth becomes his temple. And so the best news of all in the new heavens and the new earth is not our provision of food or the absence of pain, but the promise of God's presence for all eternity. And it's worth asking a question. One pastor asked this question. It's a good question. It's worth asking the question. If you could be guaranteed of a heaven with your mom there and all your kids and all your loved ones and all the food you ever wanted and all the sex you ever wanted, all the joys you could ever imagine, but Jesus would not be there, would you take it? Would you take it? The sad reality is many Christians in this country would say, I would take that heaven. But the hope of heaven is something more. It's the hope of everlasting, ever-increasing satisfaction in God. It is true that the Bible talks about heaven as a wedding feast, but the wedding is between Christ and his church. There is no sex in heaven because you've got better than sex in heaven. What you have is foreshadowing. God made sex to teach us about how good heaven's going to be. Because it's going to be better. It's going to be that sort of intimate union with Christ for all eternity. It's his presence. It's his presence. 
Let me give you one more analogy. It falls short in a couple, we got holes in the plot line, if you will, but I think it'll be helpful. Because when we hear God's presence, it's kind of a churchy um, label. God's presence, God's presence, God's presence. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, imagine you're a wife. Some of you don't have to imagine. Your husband is going off on a business trip. And uh, he says, honey, I don't know exactly how long this is going to take. Uh, I've got a lot of clients to meet. I don't know how those meetings are going to go. But, but I'll have my phone with me, and I'll call you from the road as, as soon as I'm able to. While he's away, something terrible happens. Not to frighten you. Uh, while he's away, something terrible happens. An intruder breaks into your house and holds you hostage inside your own, your own house. And threatens you, deprives you of food and water. You barely have enough to live on. Locks you away in your room day after day. And, and you just weep and you weep. But you have your cell phone and you call your husband and say, Honey, I'm trapped. Come home. Uh, you tell him everything that's happened. And he says, I'll be home as soon as I can. I'll be there. I'll be there. And you wait and you suffer and you worry And you're very brave, and you're courageous, and you know that your husband's coming, he's brave, he's courageous, and he's going to put an end to this. And then one day, he comes, and his promises are true. He arrives back at home, and he kicks out the intruder, and protects you, and gives you the food, and the water that you need, and you don't cry yourself to sleep anymore. But better than all of that, and the reason you get all of the food and the water and all that stuff that you need to survive, the reason you get that is because he's there. He's there. You don't just have to talk on the phone anymore. You can see him. You can touch him. You can love him face to face. That's the blessing of presence. And that's what it means when we look forward to spending all eternity with God and the Lamb. Yes, it means no more tears. It means no more suffering. But the reason it means those things, the reason it means no more of those things is because you you and your beloved are together. You're together. And you can be safe and you can live happily ever after. This is our reward. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, only you know the date and the hour of your son's return to judge and save. But that not ought stop us from pleading in prayer for you to send him. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for the day when there's no more sickness or disease or evil or death or mourning or crying. What a day it will be when your people, those whom you have sealed, those who have the name of the Lamb on their foreheads, those whose fundamental identity is follower of Christ, what a day it will be when we see Jesus. We'll be united forever. And we'll know for the first time what it is to be infinitely happy. And God, I pray for those listening who do not yet have the name of the Lamb upon their foreheads those whom you have not sealed. God, I pray that you'd show them the hideousness of their sin and why it took a wretched cross to deal with it. Even in this moment, I pray you'd break through their hearts of stone, bring them into your family, 
as sons and daughters so that they may know what it is to sing the song of the redeemed. We respond to what we've heard this morning by invoking our minds and bodies and emotions to worship you, the true and living God. Through Christ our Lord, we pray these things. Amen.